Hello and welcome to Invested in Clean Energy, a podcast by Reuters Plus and the Public Investment Fund, or PIF, which is where I'm from. I'm Kimberly Leonard. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a company that's building a 100% renewables-based energy system at a record low cost. A company that's setting up a sustainable and cost-competitive water supply with zero liquid discharge. A company that's building clean industries and supporting global manufacturing with sustainable industrial products. The company is Inoa. It's a subsidiary of the PIF Giga project NEOM, and Peter Terriam is at the helm and joins me now. Peter, thank you so much for talking to us. Just some of the things Inoa is working towards, they sound fantastic, but can they be done? Yeah, that's a good question. And of course they can be done. And we have the first proof point already under construction. So the fact that the first large scale green hydrogen plant, which is a project, a commercial project together with uh, Aquapower and Air Products and NEOM, is under construction in NEOM, is a confirmation of that. So why have they come to NEOM? Because what is unique in NEOM is the combination of sun and wind. Sun, logical, it's a part of uh, Saudi Arabia and there's a lot of sunshine over here. But what is special is that this part of uh, the Red Sea and the coast where we are has a lot of wind. Very stable wind, mostly in the evening and in the night. And that combination, sun in the day and wind in the evening and in the night, gives you almost around the clock renewable power at a very competitive cost. There are going to be a lot of people who are listening to this, watching this, who don't fully understand the Inoa remit because it is so broad. Can you just put it in terms that we'll all understand? Yes, the, the remit is indeed very broad, but on the other hand, it's very, very simple as well. So we are building the energy system and the water system that all of the residents in Neom and industrial customers in NEOM will need to operate their business or their household or whatever they do. And that is what we do. And it takes it end to end. So from the generation of electricity up to the transport distribution and the delivery to customers through smart meters, of course, as well as the production of water. We're not going to take water from aquifers. We are going to take the water from the sea. We desalinate it. And then we do the same way, transporting it transmission and distribution to our customers. Now what comes in addition to that, yeah, when I say total system, as far as water is concerned, the fact that they use electricity from renewable resources to do the desalination is already a very good first point. And the fact that we're building a system which is highly efficient, so minimum water losses and high quality of water. We call it water from the tap, which is some parts of the world a given, but which is here in this region pretty uh, unique. And then the management also includes what do we do with the remainders of the water, be it wastewater or be it the, the brine that comes out of the desalination process. All of that has been taken care of in such a manner that it does not go back into the natural environment. The technologies that you're using to do all of that, do they exist or are you um, coming up with them as you go along? Well, some technologies exist, you know, and uh, we don't have to invent everything. You know, if there are good things like wind onshore or solar, that's a very mature uh, product. And we're using that because mature means it is very affordable. One thing that people forget is that what we're doing is critical infrastructure, but it's almost like the basic conditions for any society. 
and that needs to be affordable. So we're using the mature technologies that are there, like for instance in the desalination, the, the standard core of a desal plant is uh, also very mature. And what we are adding is in energy to get to the 100%. We need storage. And again, also there, we're using some of the existing technologies. We will be building, and that project has just started, the largest in the world closed-loop pumped hydro uh, storage. Now, that's an existing one. We do it a little bit more advanced. So we are using a lot of nature integration in that. But then in addition, we're looking at storage that doesn't exist today. Because for our full energy systems, you cannot do the electricity storage with simple car batteries. It needs to be different size, different technology, and different cost. And if I use uh, the example of water, uh, brine, which normally is being put back in the sea, and that is, is possible, you can do that environmentally sensible, but we think that's a missed chance. So using that brine and distracting the materials that are in it. I mean, if you've taken the water from the sea already, why would you put back the good things that are in there when you can use them? And if you look at the content of seawater, there is, of course, salt in there. But if you can convert that salt into high-quality salt, it can be used for processing purposes. And there are other materials in there, like bromium, potassium, uh, magnesium. And each of them are basic materials that are used in manufacturing processes. And the way we do that, these materials are green. And I think that's a major breakthrough for the future. Because that's the problem with desalination, isn't it? Is that it's, it uses a lot of power and then it does have this discharge that's put back into the sea. Yes, you're mentioning two aspects. And let me zoom in on each of them just very briefly. The energy intensity yeah, is one. And if you do that with traditional conventional electricity, which is made out of gas or hard coal or oil, then that adds to the carbon footprint. And that's not good for the uh, global warming topic. So we're doing that with renewable energy. So that big problem we have already solved in our approach. On the brine, it's a bit more differentiated. Uh, if you just dump it in front of the coast or on the beach, then that is not good. Now, there are abilities to put it further into the sea, and then it doesn't impact the marine environment. That is uh, technically possible. And if you do that in a very environmental sensitive way, and that is possible because at the end of the day, there are no chemicals being added to the brine. It's basically what you took from the sea, you gave back, but in a different concentration and potentially with a different uh, temperature. So if you do that in a very cautious way, that is possible. But I believe it's a missed chance because why would you take it out of the sea when there are so many good things in there that the industry needs? And we want to make use of that and supply that to the industry. And then we uh, avoid the traditional mining or the traditional processes through which these materials are now today being uh, produced. You mentioned green hydrogen. What's that? Yes. Green hydrogen is very simple. It's water, H2O. And if you split the water, you take out the O, the oxygen, you're left with the H2. And that's hydrogen. The most natural process of creating a, uh, a fuel or a gas that can be used for various purposes. And because it is such a natural uh, project, and I mean, the only small addition is, in order to split that molecule, you need a lot of electricity. And that electricity is renewable. So that makes it the most green product that is there. And the beautiful thing of green hydrogen is it is so many things. It is a base material for developing other products, but it also can be used as an end product, either in large industrial applications, or you can use it for heating at home, or you can use it for mobility purposes. 
So it's a beautiful thing because it does so many different things and is therefore one of the core elements of the what I call the second wave of the energy transition. And then the first wave was about green electrons, renewable electricity from the sun and the wind. But you can only go as far with green electrons because there's a lot of purposes where you cannot use electric energy and where currently fossil fuels are being uh, used. And that is where then the green molecules come in. And all of them, whether it is green methanol or whether it is clean e-fuels, they all have this green hydrogen as a base component. And, and I think that's a major breakthrough, building the largest green hydrogen factory in the world. And if I say largest, this is 2,000 megawatt. It doesn't maybe say a lot to, to everybody, but, but notice 2,000 megawatt of electrolyzing capacity whereas the second business biggest in the world, currently under construction, is 200 megawatt. So we're just immediately 10 times the size of what is currently called world leading. And that's the breakthrough that we are pushing because all of these use cases, whether it is to manufacture green steel or whether to have what we call heavy duty uh, transport, all of them need large volumes of hydrogen because you have to invest in infrastructure, you have to invest in filling stations, and you don't do that with just a little bit of hydrogen. So the fact that we're going for scale is really enabling this transition. It really sounds like you're excited about everything that you're doing. I really get that sense of excitement for you. You've been in this industry for so long, it sounds like you're charting a new course. What is it like for you being in this position? Yeah, this is a unique chance. This is uh, really, you know, after having worked in a conventional energy system environment where it's like with renovating a house. You know, you want to modernize an old house and you can do that, but it's not that easy because there's a lot of givens that you have to take uh, for granted. And being able to build with a clean piece of paper, white piece of paper, a complete new house or a complete new energy system is like a boy's dream. And uh, that's where I'm a part of here. And then the environment in which this happens. So it's not only about the energy system. This is part of, our, of a vision, an inspiration, a mission, where everybody pulls together. And, uh, and that is what is happening. Why is Saudi Arabia, do you think, such a good place to do that? Yes, I think Saudi Arabia is a very unique place because there's quite a few things that are coming together. Now, one of the things is, this is a country that is going through a tremendous change. And for those who have not been to Saudi in the last month, year, five years, do not recognize what really is going on here when you are on the ground. This is remarkable. And this is fueled by the fact that there is a very young generation that is large. If you look at the number of people in Saudi that are under 35 or under 30, percentage-wise, uncomparable to any, any of many other countries. And they want to build their own future. So that change is being driven from the bottom up and it is being led and inspired by leadership. So that coming together. And then of course, I mean, change costs money. You need to invest. The investment comes up front before the rewards come later on. And of course, Saudi Arabia with their balance sheet strength has the ability to do this. But, but another one, and, and I could make a very long list. I'll keep it short. Yeah. It's the size of the change. If you want to build renewable energy, if you want to produce green hydrogen, then you need a lot of space. Because solar farms, wind farms, are rather space consuming. That's something that Saudi has. And then the location of Saudi. So the location being able to serve and to reach 
international markets is a very unique one as well. And, and then I believe that in this region, there's a lot going on. And if the change that Saudi is going through can be used for the benefit of this region, then this has a real impact on a global scale. It's interesting you mentioned the global scale. Um, do you think what's happening here, people are going to look at and say, we need to take note and that's going to be a blueprint for the future? I think it's gradually opening up and the recognition always comes, uh, comes late and the reward comes even later. But uh, it's a matter of letting the facts speak. And I see the facts happening. Take, for example, Neom. Yeah, a lot of people think it's still a YouTube movie and some nice, colorful slides. If you are in Neom, it's not. And our expression is, the earth is moving. We have, I don't you know, stop counting by the day, but 60 to 80,000 construction workers on the ground working, bringing infrastructure in place, bringing construction road in place, building out Oxagon, our industrial city, starting with the fundaments and the uh, transport systems of the line and, and now starting to build the first modules of the line. Trojina, this all-round place where you can go for uh, resort activities, is under construction. So there's so much going on which is really happening. I mean, Neom clearly has already, one or two years ago, past the point of no return. This is just really under construction. And if you can see it, you just get the same excitement that I have. How have you seen PIF's role in the establishment of ANOA and what, you're, what you've been doing and what, you've, what you're doing? Yes, PIF is very important for us and uh, in many aspects. Of course, last but not least, they supply a lot of the money that uh, is being invested. And as I said, the investment comes up front, the return comes later on. But that pre-investment expensive. It must is, be really expensive. It is. Doing, yeah. You know, it, if you're building a a land within a land, uh, how big is Neom? It's uh, as big as Belgium or Massachusetts. It's 35 or 36 times Singapore, so, so it's pretty big. Mm. Yeah, and 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 the roads and uh, the energy infrastructure, all of that needs to be brought in place. And, and you do not immediately find private investors for that because they would not invest in wires and in uh, anything else if there's no customer at the end of the wire. So PF needs to go through that build-up phase to as soon as customers come in and there are residents living there and there's a continuous power supply, then it attracts other investors who say, why, this is a good infrastructure investment and I want to bring money in. But that upfront investment comes from PF. But, but it's more than that because PF as a large organization brings in also the rigor and the discipline because PAF is a very credible brand globally. And the fact that you have PAF as backing gives the suppliers that go into a risk when they start constructing something for us, you know, do they get their money paid? And having PAF as a top level branding above NEOM gives a lot of reassurance to whoever we work with. Let's talk about the Saudi Green Initiative because I'm, I'm sure um, a, a lot of people haven't heard of it. They don't really know what it's about, but it's basically Saudi Arabia, right? Taking decisive steps towards a more sustainable future. So they're bringing together environmental protection, energy transition and sustainability with the overall aim of offsetting or reducing emissions, increasing the country's use of clean energy and addressing climate change. Now, reading all of that, I mean, that's basically your mission statement, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be part of that. You know, and, and I always call Neum is a bit like you know, combination of a testing ground and maybe an, 
laboratory where you can experiment a bit. But then, you know, what, what good is a laboratory if it's not then been taken forward in real life? Now, and we do that in NEOM, but the fact that it is being picked up by the kingdom makes me so proud. And I think that's important because uh, this is the region where a lot of the hydrocarbons come from. And the reputation the region has is not in line with what it deserves. The way we do, even the way we do hydrocarbons, is of a much better standard than anything I know anywhere else in the world. People don't see that. And you know hydrocarbons, don't you? People look at Yes, I know. I mean, I've, I've had a hydrocarbon activity at, uh, at RWE in oil and gas, exploration and production. Uh, but also, we run a power plant fleet which used all of the fuels, from gas to nuclear to coal to even lignite, which is about the most dirtiest form of producing electricity. Uh, it's not good, but it was at that time the only option we had. Uh, and that's what history uh, then sometimes forgets. So being here and seeing the Saudi Green Initiative, because if you can change it in this region, it really has an impact. And that is why it's so important. And what I like about the Saudi Green Initiative is not the initiative, it's the results. Because when it was announced, and I think this was in Glasgow at the COP, a lot of the skepticisms out there in the world said, oh yeah, this is another announcement and that's great. And it's difficult, you know, to change the opinion of pre-opinionated people. So what we're doing, and that is what makes me so proud, is we're delivering upon that. We don't care that much about, you know, all that negativism out there. We are making those things happen. And we report consistently. And at the end of the day, it's the facts that will speak. It, it, it's interesting because two of the key parts of the Saudi Green Initiative are that there must be clear objectives and measurable impact. It sounds like you have clear objectives, but those that, that measurable impact is that something that you're always conscious of? Yes, you, you, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And, and I think the measurement is the demonstration of the facts that you've done. But, but I think a lot of it goes beyond measurement. The fact that we in, in Saudi have implemented energy efficiency in all the government buildings, the way the street lighting is being done, all of those aspects, you know, you don't even have to measure that. You know, compare it to a lot of other governments, cities, societies out there, we're just not getting this move forward. And it's just happening here. You know, uh, the planting trees initiative, and people say, oh yeah, you're planting a few trees. No, it's huge. Yeah? And it's not only about the carbon uh, impact that it has, it is the total microclimate that changes as a result out of it. So there's so many things that are going on, I would say, you know, yes, you need to measure it, but even without measurement, they're so convincing because they really are, uh, without dispute, the right things to do. So do you think Saudi Arabia really has a, a huge role in achieving global climate targets? I think they, can, uh, they do contribute a lot because of the size of the country and because of the magnitude of the programs that are being implemented. But on the other hand, one has to be modest, even Saudi, because what is going on in China, in the US, in Russia, needs to be accomplished as well. Without them moving forward, all initiatives that are happening in Saudi are just not making the global impact that is needed. But it is a very important contributor. Interesting again, Saudi Green Initiative calling for a whole of society action. From what you're saying, that it sounds like it's not just the society here in Saudi Arabia, this is global, something is. that has to happen globally. Yes, it, it definitely has to. But then again, uh, I mean, I'm Dutch and we are used to being critical about the rest of the world. It starts with yourself. You have to lead by example, because if you lead by example, you can also call upon the responsibility of others and say, guys, we've done this, we've made this possible, why can't you? 
I think that's a more convincing approach than just pointing at the uh, missed opportunities of others, you know. What's the international response been like when you go out and talk about what NOA is doing? It's uh, first instance, oh, great idea. Then second instance, is it going to happen? And then third instance, remarkable that this is possible in Saudi Arabia. People don't expect that. People, uh, I would say in the beginning, even didn't believe it. But now that it is happening, it is turning into a positive. And I think it, NEOM can be a good reputation wise. For people who are a bit hesitant to approach Saudi because they don't really, you know, uh, believe or are not convinced about the real intent that Saudi is having, we need to work on that. But NEOM is an easy landing point. From there you attract them to the kingdom and they then from uh, uh, very close uh, then get access to and get notice of what is happening here in the kingdom. You spoke of the transition to net zero and there were two stages you spoke of, right? Do you think it's possible, when you're talking about business and the fact that everyone's cottoned on, do you think it's possible to for that transition to net zero for it to happen without compromising on economic development? I think it, it is possible uh, to do that. Uh, I'm, I'm even convinced that it is necessary and possible. But if you talk about economic consequences, we need to take the whole picture into account. Because the economic consequences of not doing it are very costly as well. So that is one one needs to keep into mind. Yeah? Uh, cheap is not always good. And on the other hand, if you, if you take it into account, maybe even partially, by giving a, a, a price or a value to the CO2, yeah, and not taking into account uh, the impact of having to build dikes for the countries that are uh, at, at sea level and, 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 and the impact of increased number of storms, etc. I'll leave that out for the equation. But if you take a, a fair value of the carbon or the cost of getting rid of the carbon into account, it is, it is economical already now. And there are quite a lot of technologies that can be used and that are being implemented. The, the challenge is not the fact of it being economical. The challenge is that this is big business and it takes time to implement it just because of the sheer scale of it. Okay, just to, just to finish, what's the most exciting thing about your job? most exciting thing about my job is, uh, is working with, uh, with people, young people, Saudi people, and seeing them grow, develop, and uh, taking the initiative and picking up some of the enthusiasm that I'm bringing in. Peter, thank you so much for talking to us. And thank you too. I'm Kimberly Leonard, and I'll speak to you soon.